This podcast is brought to you by The Empowerment Project. Research proves that empowerment self-defense training makes you safer, period. I want you to have a great self-defense toolkit so you can create strong boundaries, speak with confidence, and take up all the space that you deserve in the world. We'll hear stories from survivors and find out what worked for them and why. We'll interview leaders in the field and talk about tips, concepts, and really easy things that you could do to make yourself safer and interrupt the cycle of violence. I've taught self-defense classes for over 30 years, and I promise to teach you everything I know. Ultimately, I'm going to want you to get some in-person training, but a great empowerment self-defense class is more than just the physical skills. The list of things I want to teach you is endless, so let's get to it. My name is Sylvia Smart, and welcome to The Empowerment Project. There's been a clear uptick in mass shootings across the country, leading to lots of fear and confusion and anguish. And I thought to myself, who better to talk to than the FBI? And I am thrilled, listeners, to introduce you to Special Agent in Charge Karen Ramsey, who heads up the Portland FBI. SAC Ramsey, welcome to the Empowerment Podcast by Naga. Well, thank you so much for having me, Sylvia. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. I'm really glad you're here. I'm excited to talk with you. And I have a zillion questions to ask. But before we get started, I would love it if you would tell us just a little bit about yourself. Like, how did your journey lead you to where you are today, to what you do today? How did all of the different pieces of your life kind of line up to get you to where you are today? I know it's a huge question, so just like whatever feels comfortable, whatever you want to share, but we are all ears because we love to hear a good journey story. So sure, tell uh, I'm, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version though, or okay. else we're, we're going to be here all day okay. um, talking about myself, which uh, I don't feel comfortable about all the time. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've been in the FBI for 25 years. I've been in federal law enforcement for 30 years now this year. Um, I started with what used to be called the US Customs Service uh, as a special agent, now most recognizable as HSI, Homeland Security Investigations under the DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, I started out on the U.S.-Mexico border and I, uh, then a small town uh, known as Laredo, Texas. Mm -hmm. um, it's grown exponentially since then. Uh, I worked a lot of uh, drugs and guns and money laundering, did a lot of undercover work uh, and had a great time. Uh, at a certain point, though, I decided I wanted something different. And I looked uh, at other federal agencies and looked at the FBI and decided... I would try and uh, transfer or apply to the FBI. I did and was selected. That brought me to Seattle, Washington as a, uh, my first duty station with the FBI. There I had a, a plethora of experiences uh, with a number of different types of squads, as we call them in the FBI. So I worked on a public corruption task force and a healthcare uh, squad, a healthcare fraud squad for a while. Then I uh, jumped around, but ultimately, um, uh, after 9-11, uh, I was one of the many hundreds, if not thousands, of FBI agents that immediately was reassigned to work international terrorism. With that, that took me on a journey uh, eventually back to headquarters. 
it sent me to Cairo, Egypt, where I was the uh, agent in charge of our office in Cairo, which is called a legal attache. And I spent three years there. I then returned to the States and was assigned up in New Hampshire as the agent in charge or what's called the senior supervisory resident agent for their offices in New Hampshire. Then uh, again, another fortuitous moment in my career, the Boston Marathon bombing happens. Uh, <clears throat> and that brought me down to Boston from New Hampshire uh, on a temporary basis at first, but then eventually I never left uh, the Boston office and I was promoted to the assistant special agent in charge where I oversaw all crisis response and all terrorism matters for the New England region. From there, I jumped over to Rome, Italy, which was a really tough, tough assignment, as you can imagine. Um, the, the food and the culture and the history were awful to experience firsthand. The, the no, gelato. I, I, yeah. I joke um, that I used to chase uh, spies, terrorists, and mafia dons with a cannoli in one hand and a glass of Chianti <laughs> in the other. <laughs> but it was fascinating work. Uh, a lot of great uh, partnerships with the Italian National Police, the Carabinieri, um, the Italian Intelligence Services, Guardia di Finanza, as well as partners in Malta and at the Vatican. Um, so really great experiences there. Some very high profile cases I got to work there as well. Ultimately, that brought me back to FBI headquarters, where I was uh, designated the director of what's called the Hostage Recovery Fusion Cell, which in essence is a, a big government task force that is responsible for the recovery of Americans who are being held hostage abroad. Um, and it was an interesting assignment because although the, uh, the organization sat in FBI headquarters, I had to report up not only to the director of the FBI, but to the national security advisor and the president of the United States. Uh, and again, had some very um, high profile matters put in front of myself and my team. Uh, eventually that though brought me here to Portland where I've been for the last three years. And it's been my great privilege to oversee uh, FBI personnel, FBI operations across the state of Oregon. Um, this has certainly been one of my favorite assignments. I have uh, a great team that I work with. We have great partnerships in law enforcement across the state of Oregon. And this is really a great state to live in. The quality of life here is, is really enjoyable for myself and my family. Whoa, thank you. <laughs> that was like, <laughs> that was like just a broad, just sweeping. You've got, wow, you've had quite an interesting life. I've, I've really been privileged, I say, uh, in my career choice and how it's worked out. Um, uh, ad admittedly, uh, I also have a career filled with traumatic events, which yes. uh, you know yes. certainly takes its toll. Yeah. But uh, I feel the, the service aspect and, and the um, results that I've seen alongside teammates from law enforcement agencies across the country, if not around the world, uh, really has been rewarding and enriching in, in ways that I don't think I could have ever appreciated 30 years ago. Yeah. When you were young, this, you know, you don't have to answer this question, but when you were young, <laughs> did you did you see yourself doing this? Is this what you thought you wanted to do? Um, my interest in law enforcement was actually spurred by a criminal justice class I took my senior year of high school. Mm -hmm. Um without going into what I was doing before then, which uh, not all positive, if you talk to my parents. Uh, that <laughs> typical interest, kid. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but that interest got peaked there. I also had a good friend 
whose dad was a homicide detective in New York, uh, and just started to become fascinated with criminal justice. Uh, I ended up going to Northeastern University in Boston, which has a, a renowned criminal justice program, and they had a, a, a they still have a renowned co-op program, paid internship program, where back then they had direct pipelines for hiring um, from the university into federal agencies like Customs, the DEA, INS, and the Marshals, um, and it worked out great for me. Yeah, wonderful. Wonderful. And, uh, you know, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. You said it's not something you really like. To, you don't really like to talk about yourself. So we appreciate it. Thank you for sharing. Um, fascinating. Um, and now that we know a little bit about you and feel like we kind of know you a little bit, I I want to keep going. I, I really wanted to interview someone who could talk to me and my listeners about interrupting this cycle of violence that leads to mass shootings. I, I know my listeners and I know that they already know and they read and they think about things like how influential the NRA's money is in financing various campaigns and how gun safety laws work and don't work and how red flag laws work and don't work. And I know that they already have strong opinions about all of these things. So that's not really what I wanted to talk to you about, but I'm happy to if that's what you want to do. Uh, but before you you tell me if that's what you want to do, I wanted to tell you what I really do want to talk about. No, the, and, you know, this is, yeah. this is, I'm glad you mentioned that. And, and it's only for me to say this. Um, when we talk about this topic, it intersects with some very hot button topics that are yeah. uh, out there in the political sphere. And that's really not for me um, to engage in a debate on. Um, my job as an FBI agent and, and the people that I work alongside every day is solely to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution of the United States. Um, so that keeps the politics out of it, even though um, if you turn on any major news channel these days, you know, we're being accused of being a, a politicized agency and weaponized. I absolutely disavow those comments. And it, it really uh, bothers me, given that I've dedicated 25 years of my life to this agency and I, I've been around. So I know what the ground truth is uh, as to what our mission is and how we carry it out. And it is not to wade into the political fray. Well, you know, that's something that um, when I started being exposed to the FBI and went through the Citizens Academy and became part of the Alumni Association and was on the board of the Alumni Association, I mean, that's something that I felt really strongly, what you just said. And it to me, there there is a certain amount of respect that I have for all of you for being able to draw that line and for being able to be really clear about that. And it's it's really nice to hear that, Sylvia. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, um, we probably don't hear it enough. And it's not that we need to hear that reassurance, that affirmation that people do appreciate uh, what we do each day and the sacrifices we make, both personally and professionally, quite honestly. Uh, but I know that um, the people that I work with across the country in the FBI know that we are here to get the job done, that we keep our head down and we focus on our mission, which again, most especially is to keep the American people safe. Well, what a great segue. So what <laughs> I want to talk about is this. The last active shooter training I did out at the Portland FBI headquarters was run by this amazing agent. And he was talking about 
a lot of things, but what the topic of prevention and the role of people like me and my listeners came up, the role that we can play in interrupting this awful cycle of violence. And he said it so clearly. I thought that someone at your organization could speak directly to my listeners and help us go to a new level of awareness about this. So that's what I really want to talk with you about. Are you good with that? Absolutely. Okay, cool. So bear with me. But before we get to that, I wanted to drop back and punt. And I was hoping that we could just do a quick overview of the basics. And what I mean by that is, over the years, I've learned from you. And when I say you, I mean, like the FBI at large and the trainings that I've taken from you and the reports that your organization so generously shares with the public and that kind of thing. I learned that there's no real profile per se of an active shooter, but that there there are clear behaviors to look for. And tell me if I understand this correctly, that shooters aren't necessarily lone wolves living in a total isolation like we see on TV or in the movies, but that they often live with or interact with people like us, people in their communities, like at school, at work, etc. In other words, there are people all around them. And then the third little piece of this is from you that I learned about leakage, which is that between buying the stuff that they buy, like large amounts of ammo and weapons and writing manifestos and posts on social media and things they choose to talk about, that they leave a little trail. That if someone like me, someone like my listeners comes into contact with this behavior, we might very well be able to see that there's actually something going on. There's something wrong. Does that sound like I have that right? Or is there a profile that's starting to unfold and emerge? Or Anyway, in the spirit of awareness, can you uh, can you talk about these behaviors and, sure. and tell us like what kinds of things are we looking for? What might we see? Well, let's let's frame a let's frame the question with a couple of uh, broader points. I think okay. would, would be helpful. Okay. Um, you know, first off, when we talk about the threat of the active shooter, we have to acknowledge that the the active shooter threat that we see today is unlike any other life threatening situation. Think of natural disasters, fires, even, you know, street crime, like a robbery or, or some kind of assault. When we talk about an active shooter, we're talking about somebody that is actively hunting somebody, trying to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible. So by understanding this threat, we need to understand it better so that we can actually be prepared to make critical decisions, God forbid, we are faced with that situation someday. And here's the other big point that we need to make in conjunction with that. Our data conclusively shows that there is an upward trend in the number of attacks per year over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we go back 20 years or longer, this this was not the problem it was, or it, it was not the problem it is today at all. Um, uh, unfortunately, it's something that we have to live with every day. We can turn on the news at any point and see another mass shooting, another active shooter, all of these things. And, and when we talk about uh, who the active shooter is, there is the easy admission that law enforcement makes all the time, that it is possible to predict some, but it is absolutely impossible to predict with 100% accuracy who the next active shooter will be. 
Right. Um, because there is no profile and specific answer to your question. You know, th there's data that tells us it's more often male than female. Um, there's data that tells us in terms of the ideations of, of, of what causes it. And then the the time span in which attacks occur and, and are planned before that and everything. But the fact is, you know, we want to be aware of indicators because there is a prevention piece to this. And it's not simply we have to be prepared for the attack itself. We should be just aware, period, of the people around us, the people in our community, and not for a paranoid purpose, just for a simple awareness purpose. And if we if we mistake the fact that, you know, this, well, this just couldn't happen to me. Well, unfortunately, the data also shows it happens everywhere. It certainly does happen in, in middle size and smaller size communities. And it happens in every setting possible. Things that all of us go to settings each and every day, each and every week, be they at work or the store or a hospital or, or where, wherever you can think of. So when we think of it in that regard, again, our message from law enforcement is just, hey, you should understand this threat. We're not saying anybody needs to be an expert, but we want you to understand the threat so you can be prepared for the threat. And if there's any way that you see something that perhaps could prevent the next attack, well, that's right there saving lives and that's a win. Exactly. Okay, so can we drill down on that? What do you, what do you mean when you say if you see something that might be a threat or you see something that might be a concern? Can we talk about like, what would that look like? What is that? Like I mentioned, they're buying a ton of weapons that they have no reason to buy or, you know, they've got maps with detail. Like, what are the things that we're looking for in behavior? Well, that's the, and, and that's the ultimate question, right? And it's actually, you know, let's go to the, the big campaign that we use even till uh, even this day right now that see something, say something, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a third part to that, though. It's see, say, see something, say something and do something. Yes. It's really important to add that last part. So when, we, when we're talking about the specific behaviors um, that we know the data shows us before an attack occurs, these things exist and can be seen, can be witnessed by bystanders. And we talk about the bystander effect, but things that you've already mentioned, a deeply held personal grievance that has no apparent means of resolution and that they are just saying aloud all the time or expressing in a, in a consistent manner. Maybe a, 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 a creepy history of stalking, um, maybe a, a history of harassing and threatening and menacing behavior of, of people either in their life or in their community or in the area. Um, all good, good indications. When we think about, um, if we drill down even further, somebody that's showing an increased sense of isolation in conjunction with one of these other uh, behaviors an obsession maybe with researching prior active shooters. Unfortunately, we see even in our very recent example, uh, these uh, shooters idolize previous shooters before them. They'll even right. put symbols and writings on their weapons when they go out the door mm -hmm. uh, to make the attack. When we look at the planning and preparation, there are things out there that might be seen by people in their lives, in their, in their circle, so to speak. You know, if we see a, a hit list, which is should be fairly obvious, but maybe it's not to some people, but a hit list, uh, some kind of diagramming, 
And then any kind of preparation, and you mentioned it before, you know, gathering weapons, ammo, explosives with real no uh, apparent purpose other than, you know, perhaps with that anger beside them. And then if we look at statements, that leakage that you talk about, warnings that people will specifically say out loud, but even especially will say online, things like don't go to school tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Scary things, things yeah. that are very foreboding. Um, you know, there are further uh, concerns that are out there that, you know, perhaps get into this gray area where people get concerned. Well, this issue or alone shouldn't be one. You know, when we talk about the obsession with ultraviolet movies or video games. But look, that that could be part of this when viewed in the context of other behaviors that we're talking about or or maybe really disturbing suicidal statements. You know, again, this this anger. And really, when we talk about anger, it's actually a very deep sadness, a very deep depression that manifests itself in anger. Um, Because then when we see this no apparent fear of death, well, that that becomes ultra concerning for us. Mm -hmm. And isn't there something also about uh, sort of almost self-victimization or feeling like "Eh, no one understands me, the girls don't go out with me, like this kind of perceived victim Uh, uh, victimhood is one um and i think you know you're lightly referencing what we call the incel behaviors uh, of these uh involuntary celibates um a class of shooters that has uh unfortunately come to be recognized where there is this grievance against in this case the opposite sex or maybe it's the same sex doesn't matter but their inability to form meaningful intimate relationships with others and all of a sudden there's a victimhood that they place upon themselves. And again, thus building further and further anger, further and further violence uh, or ideation of violence. Uh, and then again, the ultimate manifestation of uh, planning and preparation and, and the actual attack. You, that is, that is great. That's super clear the way that you just describe that. And really quick, I want to say that when I did that last active shooter training at the FBI in January, um, a question or something that people always say, not always, but often say to empowerment self-defense teachers is something like, why would I take a class like this? I'm already paranoid enough. And something that you mentioned was mentioned in that training in January, and I loved it, and I've used it a lot since, which is that when you are uncertain and you don't know what's going on, that's when you feel paranoid. But when you have a plan and you're prepared, you're talking about it in a different way, but when you have a plan and prepare and you're prepared, like when we have some active shooter training, when we know what the actual facts are, when we know what we're looking for, that's when we feel empowered. And so that's kind of what where I want this conversation to go. And you, you brought up reporting. And can we talk about that for a second? Absolutely. Cool. And then I want to get back to some other things, um, like how do we interrupt this cycle of violence? But um, if you see something, say something. If you hear something, say something, but do something. So here are some things that I've heard when I'm out in the world discussing mass shootings or while I'm doing trainings with various groups, people who will say, um, who have said to me things like, It just seems like there's nothing we can do or I don't think enough is being done or 
I don't think I'd feel comfortable calling 911. If there was an active shooting, I, I think I'd rather call my neighborhood safety committee. I really heard that. Um, or if I'm concerned about a person's behavior, I don't think I'd feel comfortable reporting them because I can't trust what would happen next. So I wanted to kind of get at this with you because I understand where their comments are coming from. You know, you look at the news, you look at what's going on, and we know for folks who are black and brown skin, for people who have been experiencing mental health crises, that sometimes calling law enforcement, not always, but sometimes it can be lethal. So I just wanted to just ask you about about that perception and about what's going on with that, what you what your thoughts and feelings are about that. And then I have more questions about actually reporting. Well, that's that's a lot to unpack. So let me let I me know. try and take that a step at a time. Thank um, you. First off, uh, reporting. Uh, when when the when law enforcement is out there trying to encourage people uh, in this see something, say something, do something, uh, especially when we're talking about uh, lone violent offenders or, or people that could be the next active shooter, you know this is this is because we continue to see evidence. There's data to back it up that folks that before they go out and do that attack, there is l- what we call leakage. Their behavior has been observed. Their statements have been heard. Their planning and preparation has been observed. These have all been seen. And when you put it all together, if if given to the right person, when it's put all together, it paints a picture of, okay, perhaps an intervention is needed. What the level of that intervention might look like is going to greatly depend on the person, the context, the circumstances. Right. But Yeah, all of it. Exactly. But I mean... God forbid you were the person that did see um, some kind of evidence of planning and preparation and heard the violence ideation and witnessed the self-isolation and growing anger and didn't say anything. And then that person goes out and commits that attack. And only after the attacks happen, then you call law enforcement and say, oh, you know, um, I actually saw some stuff. Uh, that's that's a, a heavy toll to bear. And I'm not I'm not saying that in a critical manner against anybody. I'm just from a human perspective, like, wow, yeah. um, you, you saw this, you recognized it because you are aware of what the threat is. And that's this is where I'm going with this. This complements the fact that this is why we're trying to educate people about the threat, to know what to look for so that they are making an informed choice about what they've witnessed to then turn around and report it. And it may be to law enforcement. It could be to a community safety team or a neighborhood safety team or something we call the threat assessment team, which is a a model that we are continuing. uh, And I say we big law enforcement and mental health services are continuing to build out where we are trying to make sure there is a consistent presence across every community of some kind of multidisciplinary team made up of various individuals from uh, mental health and law enforcement, perhaps school officials and, and community officials, what have you, that can really discuss what's been reported and come up with a safe plan to engage uh, this individual to determine, are they on that pathway to violence? But when we when we hear the concerns of, a, well, um, how do we distinguish this from, you know, a mental health episode or drug abuse or everything, you know, and unfortunately, law enforcement gets hold, left holding the bag, right? Um, mm-hmm. Law enforcement should not be in the business of um, 
resolving mental health issues. Law enforcement should not be in the business of trying to resolve substance abuse issues. Unfortunately, over time, that's that's where it's been left with. And I think finally, we've turned a corner as a society to realize, okay, um, we need to do something different because we put this at the feet of law enforcement and then it goes badly and then we blame them. Mm-hmm. Yet again, law enforcement is, is supposed to be one tool for, you know, be it law enforcement, public safety, but we're not equipped to deal with the the mentally ill and resolve those concerns and everything. So hence why we continue to see this um, drive towards uh, partnerships with mental health services and communities, with uh, substance abuse services and communities, so that it is not solely left at the feet of law enforcement, especially in a circumstance that could be so dire um, that if people are not properly informed as to what the active uh, active shooter threat could look like or does look like and mistake it for something else, we miss that opportunity perhaps to interject and intervene and prevent that that horrible, horrible catastrophe from happening. Yes, I love the threat assessment model, and I think it doesn't make the news also. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that the... um, the stories that we hear in the news are the ones that create drama, the ones that drive profit, the ones that are exciting, um, you know, the different mass shootings. And like an example I have is my kid was in middle school and someone threatened him with a knife. And because he was my kid and because he'd grown up doing self-defense classes, he was like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. And he went and he told somebody and that person didn't believe him. So he went and he told somebody else who did not believe him. So he went to the principal and told the principal who believed him and did a locker search, found the found the weapon and turned the tables on that family that that kid came from and got resources driven to them. And of course, the kid was expelled, but they got resources. They got that threat assessment. They, the kid got to safety. And we don't know how that could have turned out 20 years later. We just don't know. But it doesn't make the news. It's not that exciting. But I I hear from you that threat assessment actually really works. It, it does. And, and the evidence is in, or the proof is in the pudding and the fact that the amount of threat, threat assessment teams across communities uh, throughout the country continues to increase. Here in the state of Oregon, we very much embrace the threat assessment team model. Kaiser, Oregon serves as the gold standard, if you will, um, where they created this model a uh, long time ago. And they continue to be looked on uh, for guidance as, as, okay, this is where it has to go. And I, I know even here in the state of Oregon, we partnered with the Oregon State Police two summers ago to go across the state uh, and meet with school officials, mental health officials, community officials, and law enforcement to make sure that we were encouraging, look, every community should have one of these, because that way you can look at the, uh, the issue, the concern, the reported issue by whomever from a number of different lenses and, and likely come up with a much better determination as to what kind of threat this is and what kind of intervention needs to be done. Yeah. And then like, I've been thinking, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, So like there's, there, like, I want to talk a little bit about the role of denial and not speaking up and us not reporting or 
once reported, not knowing what to do, feeling overwhelmed. So like I'm thinking about uh, not too long ago, a first grader brought a gun to school and shot his teacher. And there was, uh, you know, a situation and his behavior had been reported at various stages and it still happened. And then like I'm thinking Q nightclub, the perpetrator made a bomb threat against his family the year earlier and there were red flag laws in the state. But like by hook and by crook and by this and by that, the, the signs were there, but it still happened. And there's Walmart in El Paso. Later on, we find that the signs were all there and people didn't see it. People didn't report it. Or if they did, nothing happened. And so like, let's talk about what do we need to know and how are we missing this? And then I promise you we'll move from reporting on to interrupting the cycle of violence, which is what I really want to get at. But um, like, what are we missing? What's our role here? And how, like, to me, bravery comes in here when we stand up and we speak up. It's, I was talking with a friend earlier this week who, who said that as she was growing up, compliance was praised as bravery. Like, just sit there and don't cry and take the, you know, it's just a little vaccination. It's going to hurt, but just, you know, you can do it. You're really brave. And that uh, as she's become more and more empowered, she's re- realizing how hard it is to speak up and stand up. And anyway, I want to I want to talk a little bit about why people might hesitate to report and or once reported, maybe not act. I don't know. I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were on that. Well, uh, so let's unpack that then. Two, okay. two different issues, right? Um, yeah. In terms of the the. Um, hesitancy, perhaps, to report, yeah. or the reluctance to report. Again, uh, you know, we've taken the stance in law enforcement that we overcome that by educating people about the threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it simply doesn't work to rely on the news media to see these uh, mass shootings and active shooting incidents happen nearly every week at this point, um, tragically. Um, that's not enough to educate people about what the threat is. People need to hear from professionals. And it, it may be law enforcement, it may be mental health uh, officials, it, it may just be community officials, but really get people to understand what this threat is. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's, it's part of our society now that we have to deal with. But let's make sure we get people educated so that they are aware. Yeah. If you are aware and educated, you automatically become empowered, yeah. right? Or nearly yes. any issue. It's not related solely to this. Right. But if you are aware and educated, you automatically become empowered to do something. And that's where our efforts have gone with law enforcement. And, and there are a number of private entities, most often um, run by former law enforcement or former military, um, that do a lot of great training out there. Um, it, it's, um, you know, it's just talked about all too much, but clearly still not talked about enough so that everybody understands what the threat is, is aware and empowered to make sure that if they see something, they say something, they do something. Yeah. But let's let's talk about the, the concern after the fact, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, we have far, far too many incidents um, to go through one by one, but let's talk about a couple of the seminal moments uh, of this threat that have really changed the game. Uh, so to speak. The first one, obviously, is the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that 
uh, I remember myself, I was uh, the supervisor of the FBI offices in New Hampshire and hearing the reports of that, my phone was, was blowing up. I was coming back from a federal prison visit for something and my phone was ringing off the hook and finally I was able to answer it. And they said, hey, this has happened, turn on the news. Okay, and we, we heard it on the, the radio. Um, and he has a family relative living in your AOR, your area. You need to go find them right now. Um, but I, I can remember the, the physical shaking reaction I had to the news that uh, an elementary school was targeted. Yeah. Yeah. You know, dozens of children were killed. Yeah. And that's what caused the, the FBI and the Department of Justice to really more assertively enter into the training and education and the response to active shooter threats. Uh, in fact, after that, the Investigative Assistance for Violent Crimes Act of 2012 was passed, which allows the U.S. Attorney General designating the FBI to offer assistance to any state and local uh, authorities to get us involved immediately if they have an active shooter situation. So that, that was a, a huge, huge game changer. Then we fast forward again to another just horrible, awful, tragic event, uh, you know, at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School in, in Parkland, Florida in February 2018, where there was notification made to law enforcement, including the FBI, and it was not acted upon in the appropriate way. Um, and we see the consequences afterwards. And in fact, it's changed the FBI in such a way that while we are not a national 911 call center, we effectively have become one in a sense. So we stood up an entire new uh, structure in the FBI called the National Threat Operations Center that can take tips via phone or via online from anywhere in the country and make sure that they can quickly triage and analyze those and then push them to the appropriate law enforcement agency. And it may be to the FBI and some state and local agency, or it may just be to a state or local agency with an awareness message sent to the local FBI field office so that there is some action being taken on every single one of these tips provided. Now, again, these are human beings that are doing this. So it, it unfortunately uh, is not a perfect system by any means, but it has really changed the way that it is taken in from that reporting so that something is done about it. There is a reaction by law enforcement and it is accounted for and tracked very closely until the threat has been so-called resolved. Maybe that's an intervention. Maybe that's some criminal investigation with an arrest. Who It could be a, a, any number of things out there. Right, right. But unfortunately, you know, every single one of these attacks that we see has changed us, and I say us, big law enforcement, including the FBI. I mean, I can go through a list of just this year alone, if we look at the Louisville Bank in Kentucky in April of this year, the Nashville Christian Elementary School in Tennessee of March of this year, Michigan State University in February of this year, the Lunar New Year Dance Studio in Monterey Park, California in January of this year. I mean, these continue to happen. And our hope, as I keep saying, is that we continue to educate the public and not from a sense of paranoia at all. Right. Simply from a sense of awareness, maybe a heightened level of vigilance so that people are paying attention, just like we, uh, you know, uh, we practice fire drills all the time, right? In, in business exactly. settings and in school yeah. settings. 
look, this, unfortunately, this threat is big enough that we have to have that same level of awareness and quite honestly, practice a response because there's one part of this on the front side that we're, we're talking about now left of the events that we are trying to get ahead of it. But on the right side, if that event happens, we also want people to be aware, educated, empowered, and know to have a plan to simply not freeze in the face of the ultimate reason to be fearful. And that being somebody with a gun hunting you down. Right. And I think there's also a place for active shooter trainings for people who are survivors of trauma, because it's going to be different than law enforcement people who are saying like, you need to get a gun or whatever. Like, there's, oh, uh, like you, yeah, you you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. and, and that's the thing I think, you know, there is a lot of criticism when we talk about the, the training that's provided of run, hide, fight, right? Um, there's a lot of criticism that it is too sequential or linear in nature, um, that it is uh, a one size fits all approach and it's not focusing in the right way because every active shooter situation is different and better yet, every person in that situation is different. And the fact is the run, hide, fight training has evolved significantly so that it is no longer linear. It is simply meant to make sure people are aware this could happen and that given your personal circumstances and the setting in which you're in, okay, on your feet, not freezing, have a plan. Moving. And, and move. Yes. Yes. So like listeners, did you hear what SAC Ramsey just said? Because I am always encouraging everyone in my listener group, go take an empowerment self-defense class. Like, just learn how to protect yourself. And I think this is very true. Go take an active shooter class too. Like just know, because the more we know, the more empowered we are, period. That's how it goes. That is the truth. Um, you said something else I wanted to follow up on, but I can't remember what it is. So I'm going to move <laughs> on. Oh, I know. I wanted to give an example um, of what you were talking about. And so it's again from my life. So my husband works in... Um, real estate property management. And he was touring some apartments, making sure that the plumbing got done right, making sure that the painting was done right, and that people were feeling comfortable and that, you know, the fire extinguishers were not expired and, you know, that kind of thing. And he walked into an apartment where there was a, a kit on the table where someone was making bullets, but like a lot of bullets. And he looked on, at the wall and the wall was full of guns hanging up, like automatic guns. And there was ammo and there were flak jackets and there were uh, bulletproof vests and maps. And he said he got out of there as fast as he could. And he called me because he knew I'd been taking uh, the Citizens Academy out at the FBI. And he's like, Syl, what should I do? What should I do? And I was like, I'm so glad you got out of there. You need to call the FBI. And so I gave him the number and he called your main office and talked to someone and let them know what he saw. And he got a call back later that day from someone at the Portland FBI. And they said, thank you. This is really important. And they asked him a few questions and they're like, yeah, we've got this guy. Like we have been following him. And that was great information to add to what we already know. So I'm just encouraging people that what you said is how it's all part of a bigger picture. It's context. And what you said about having that center, I forget what you called it. So encouraging. What is it? What did you say it's called? 
the I'm not sure. now I'm not sure what you're saying. <laughs> it's can, the Sylvia, one. <laughs> it's Sylvia, like... can I ask a favor though? Can we pause yeah. for just one second? Yes. Because I've uh, my phone's ringing off the hook right oh, yeah, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but I'll be right back. Let me just yes. see what's going on with this. Yes, of course. It's a number that I usually have to do respond to. Okay, yeah, cool. One second. Yes. Back Sorry in. about that. Back no, in. I hope everything's okay. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, we had a, a threat this morning on this very topic um, down south of here, um, and it was good to, uh, luckily, it's not ongoing anymore. It's resolved, and it was just an update for that, so. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Thanks. Thanks for thanks for letting me know. I'm glad everything's okay now. It's really encouraging to hear about. It was like this national kind of central. Uh, threat oh, the National Threat Operations Center. Yes. Yeah. How awesome is that? That that is really encouraging. So that when people do report, there's actually a central place there where people are tracking this stuff. And, so and it's cool. it's a it's a major effort. Um, you know, the FBI really took seriously trying to reconfigure how we intake this because, again, being a national agency, but we're not the national police, right? Right. Um, right. We have a very uh, specific mission, even though it's a broad mission at that. But there needs to be an ability. Uh, you know, again, most communities uh, have great communications between uh, themselves and their law enforcement agencies. But when there is that concern, and given that we live in a digital age where you could see that concern online from across the country or you know some other unique circumstances, to have the ability to have a centralized place if it comes into the FBI that we will uh, triage it, analyze it, and make sure that the appropriate action is taken on it and then track that. Uh, it's sad, admittedly, that we need something like this in this yeah. day and age. But it's obviously necessary. Well, and it's too big of a job for you. I mean, for any one organization or any, uh, it's, uh, I mean, it. I think this is why it's so important for us to be talking about this kind of thing. Like, it's it's up to us. It's up to the teachers. It's up to the coworkers. It's up to the bosses. It's up to the managers at the school, you know, the principal and all of us to be as aware as we can, to be looking um, and, and, and to talk about it and to report it. And you're right, like education and sharing and communicating, it's all going to keep us safer. But I really want to move on to like this part that I was so excited to talk to you about, which is really looking at how we stop this cycle of violence as people, as people like me and my listeners, like that aren't FBI agents that are just out there doing our life. Um, so here are the notes that I wrote um, from my last training with the FBI. And I want to move on to this, but I also don't want to cut you off. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about what we were just talking about? Well, you mentioned something that's incredibly important to emphasize, and that's the partnership. Um, yeah. And I'll say it um, from two perspectives. First, um, for the FBI and our law enforcement partners, generally speaking, um, uh, and I'll say this outright, um, active shooter incidents are the problem of our local and state partners immediately. They're the ones who are going to take the 911 call. They're the ones who are going to have, you know, marked units respond and, and yeah. likely be in the thick of it, hopefully right. within those first critical three minutes. Um, but with that, you know, behind them, you know, we certainly look to either respond or support in some way of any uh, incident that perhaps occurs. 
On top of that, though, and you talked about it also, the broader partnership with the community, making sure all facets of the community, and I keep mentioning mental health officials, substance abuse officials, school officials, community officials, you know, uh, municipal leadership, what have you, that there is a familiarity, that there is an established partnership across the entire spectrum that is known to one another, um, that constantly focuses on the safety of all of the various institutions, organizations, establishments, uh, and settings that we have in our communities for the benefit of the entire community. And again, I think in Oregon, we are very, very fortunate to have such great partnerships with the community at large, let alone our law enforcement partners, where this is a topic of discussion on a fairly frequent basis. Um, and touch wood, you know, I, I, I dread the day that we are faced with this uh, scourge of violence again in, in some Oregon community. So let's talk about this prevention thing, because I'm really interested in it. We talk about this in empowerment self-defense classes all the time. Um, my, my voice, the way that I stand, the way that I carry myself through life, the way that I am able to say no, the way that I can look people in the eye and set my boundary that's too close, move back. The, there are so many ways that by changing my own behaviors or looking at my own behaviors, I can create safety for myself. And what I loved about this last training that I took with y'all out at the FBI is that the agent said something like, each of us has a role in preventing mass shootings. Specifically, we can do things like, quote, foster an emotionally safe environment in whatever sphere that we're operating in get to know people around us, express genuine interest in other people, show genuine kindness, and be respectful. And I was like, bingo. Like, that is all about being a good human, but it's also about creating safety by helping people feel included and part of and seen and affirmed and, and creating space yeah, it just seemed like, yeah, I want to talk to you about it. So can you like, can you talk to me about it? <laughs> like... <laughs> um, broad strokes. Let's let's yeah. uh, back up then. Um, yeah. You know, active shooters are, are hyper violence, hyper violent people that sadly have a plan to, you know, cause as much destruction and damage to human life as possible. Um, but they're hyper-violent through that anger, right? And we've talked about yeah. that today. Yeah. But as my wife, who is a, a mental health counselor by trade, will tell you, um, angry people are really, in fact, sad people. Mm -hmm. And that sadness is what then manifests itself into anger and then ultimately violence. But engaging with you know, our, our community members, and, and even if there are people that we don't know, and creating that sense of inclusivity versus exclusivity yeah. that would further that exclusivity is going to further that sadness, that anger and that potential violent ideation that they have. Um, kindness is king, right? Um, we can talk about that all day long. I, I you know, uh, I'm a very pious Catholic and we talk about uh, love and respect and kindness and how much kindness 
can turn even the smallest act of kindness can have such a huge ripple effect. But sadly, um, we aren't able to show or see via the data of those little acts of kindness, of that expression of empathy, and how it prevents the attack that never occurs, which is, you know, uh, right. I, I wish we had more data to show that. Um, but the fact is, you know, there are a number of prevention myths out there that we are constantly battling. Um, you know, the fact that there can be 100% prevention through prediction or, or intervention just just isn't true these days. Mm -hmm. um, but also in the same sense, the prevention myth of nothing can be done. That's equally right. false. Yeah. So we, we have to fall somewhere in the middle um, as best we can. There are other things that we, we see that factor into this, you know, of prevention myths like the impenetrable fortress when we talk about the school shooting uh, issues and, and making schools impenetrable or or architectural designs for multiple exits and entries and mm, mm -hmm. um, furniture that is ballistically enhanced uh, so that if it does happen, people can be in safety. Uh, there's, there's just a whole, tragically, there's a whole industry being born around this threat that we're seeing today. You know, that's so interesting because we talk about that in empowerment self-defense classes too. It's like if you go to a class and people are like, you know, don't walk in certain neighborhoods. Don't go there at night. Oh, that happened to her because of what she was wearing. Oh, well, what did she think would happen? Like there are these myths that people want to believe in because if I follow the rules, then I'll be safe. And I think what I hear you saying is it's a much more complicated picture. It's not black and white. Like you can't just buy that desk. Absolutely. The, um, there, there's a lot of gray area here. We don't want to victim blame either uh, no. at all. No. Just very much. And I have uh, dear friends of mine that run a, a martial arts studio in New Hampshire mm -hmm. and they offer similar classes. And it's, it's uh, very much in the empowerment realm, uh, more towards sexual violence and preventing sexual violence. Mm -hmm. But as as they constantly preach, and, and I applaud you and uh, anybody that has this mantra of, look, don't let yourself be a victim, but we're not also going to blame victims. Right. right. Um, that, that doesn't work and that solves nothing. Um, we want to live in an idyllic society where we can go and uh, wherever and do where whatever we please and and not be fearful. Unfortunately, that's not the case. But that doesn't mean anybody deserves um, to have that violence brought upon themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's really true. I knew you'd be a great person to talk to, and I'm really glad that you're here. And, you know, as you were talking and as I was thinking, it's like, you know, we want to teach our kids to go over to the kid that's sitting alone at the lunchroom. We want our kids to be that person, that person that reaches out to other people who look like they don't fit in or who feel like they don't fit in. And it's just the creation of a society that that can be safer. Do you know what uh, I mean? I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, there's there's obviously larger societal and um, so socio psycho issues at, at play here that if we were a kinder society, um, perhaps we wouldn't be faced with this scourge of violence. Yeah. But, you know, the fact is when we when we come back to reality as to, you know, this is a, a tough topic, right? A very scary topic, um, frightening. Um, but to go back to what we said earlier, this is not to talk about all this to make people paranoid. Um, bottom right. line, everyone has a choice. 
Um, you can ignore the threat like an ostrich and, and, and put your head in the sand and, and hope it never happens to you, um, sure. Uh, you could live in constant paranoia and never leave your house. Um, that's that's kind of sad as well. Or you can choose to be prepared and aware and then go on living and enjoying your life. And that if you're prepared, in the end, you don't need to have a constant sense of fear. Okay, way to wrap it up, SAC Ramsey. Like, <laughs> bingo. Woohoo! Well done. That is That is a great ending right there. You did it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's wonderful. Um, And so last thing, though, is there anything else you want to say that we haven't covered yet or that you'd like people to know that are listening? Well, uh, again, if somebody sees something that's extremely concerning to them, uh, be it behavior or or evidence of some kind of planning preparation or, or significant violence or anything, um, please have the confidence to call your, your local police or, or author- law enforcement authorities. Um, you can even call a non-emergency number. Most police departments these days have that. However, if you want to call the FBI, we welcome those calls as well. And people can reach out to us all the time at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Or you can even go online and submit a tip to us at tips.fbi.gov. And I really pray for the day that um, these things aren't needed at all. And listeners, I will put links and the phone number up in this episode's description so you have easy access to that for sure. So Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for spending the last hour with me. I really appreciate it. And I know that my listeners do, too. Thank you. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. And uh, uh, again, I hope it's helpful to even just one listener, if not multiple. It's affirmation time. This is how I end every self-defense class. It's kind of cheesy, but it's very cool, and this is how it works. We're going to do like a little call and response. If you can say this out loud, if you can repeat after me, do it, because it's important, I think, for you to hear your own voice. But if you can't, like if you're on a crowded subway or someplace where it's embarrassing, don't worry. You can also just say it inside your head. Okay, so I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it after me. I'm going to give you space to do that. And at the end, we're going to say yes. Here we go. Repeat after me. I am worth protecting. I love myself. I belong. I deserve to take up space on planet Earth. I am a strong and powerful person. Yes! Woohoo! And hey, as a wrap up, will you do me a favor? Will you do all the things that you do when there's a podcast? Like, will you tell your friends? Will you subscribe? Will you come back each week? communicate with me, review this podcast, like all those things to help get more bandwidth, help more people find out about it. That would be super awesome. Take a deep breath. You are amazing. Thank you for being with me. See you next time.